I want to turn to the Scriptures and take a short reading at the close of Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, Mark has been telling us here in verse 37 about a great storm. We're going to read in verse 39 where he's going to speak about a great calm. It was the intervention of a great Savior that made the difference. Verse 39, And he, that is the Lord Jesus, arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Apostle John, in his writings over in his first letter, in 1 John 3 and 1, would write, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. The poet said, What manner of man, with what manner of power, could command the wind and the wave? What manner of man, with what manner of love, would reach out poor sinners to save? That's the one that we seek to speak to you about tonight, the one that the disciples asked this great question here of, as they witnessed the Savior's mighty power on the Galilean Sea. What manner of man is this? If you are following the reading tonight in our good King James translation, you will notice that the chapter closes with a question mark. It's asked in the form of a question. The other uh, two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, both in the parallel passage in chapters 8 of each of their gospel, they'll give it in the form of an exclamation. It's followed with an exclamation mark. As the disciples witness, I say, the power of Christ, they make this great exclamation, what manner of man is this? Here, here it's a question. Mind you, there are some great Bible questions, aren't they? And asking questions even from earliest childhood. It's part of, the, part of the learning process. That's how we accumulate knowledge. From we begin to put a few words together, we begin to ask questions. The oldest of my uh, two little granddaughters is four-year-old now, and when you meet her, the questions start flowing when you're with her. Who and what and where and so on. It's how we learn. It's how we accumulate. Someone asked the a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, Martin Pearl. He won the Nobel Prize for physics back in 1995. And someone asked him on one occasion to what did he attribute his success. And he said, for the most part, he said, I would attribute it to my mother. Each day, he said, when I come home from school, my mother would say to me, well, Marty, did you ask any good questions today? You see, asking questions, it's how we learn, isn't it? Interesting, the first question in our Bible wasn't asked to instruct. It was asked rather to deceive. Satan asked the question in Eden's garden in Genesis chapter 3. Hath God said, trying to confuse, trying to blind the mind. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 11 and 3. He says, the serpent, Satan beguiled Eve with a subtlety and still doing that today. But God's desire is ever to enlighten, to instruct. And so right through the pages of our Bible, we see the questions right to the very last one in Revelation 17 and 7. And as the judgments of God are poured out 
in a day that's maybe not far distant, the angel says to John, wherefore didst thou marvel? He says, I will tell thee the mystery. You see, God's ever wanting to enlighten, wanting you and I to learn of his ways. And so the, the questions are most interesting. Just a few hundred yards from where I'm living over in South Belfast, there's that mighty big uh, Windsor Stadium. And as oftentimes as I'm walking past one of the side entrances, uh, I stop and read, there's, a, there's what's called a wall of questions. Well, some of them are just uh, what I would call trivial sporting questions. Others, others are more random. But mind you, there's a couple of probing questions on that wall. I often think about them as I look at them. One of them says, what gives your life meaning? That's a big question, isn't it? I wonder how you would answer that tonight. What gives your life meaning? <laughs> Thinking about Paul again in Scripture, he had no doubt about it. You remember he wrote in, in Philippians 1.21, he says, For to me to live is Christ. That's what gave meaning to the Apostle Paul's life. There's another question on that wall. I think it's very searching. It says, How long? How long is forever? You ever think about the forever? You and I will never cease to be. And could I ask you kindly, just in light of that, where will you be? in the great forever. You see, had we read further up in this chapter, the Lord Jesus said to the disciples on that occasion, he says, let's pass over to the other side. And isn't life just like that? You and I are passing over to the other side. We're often, as we speak about, on the voyage of life. And the poet said, timeless eternity, shoreless infinity, measureless, limitless, fathomless sea, incomprehensible, vastness extensible, ever and ever and ever to be. Where will you be when this little journey of life is over? Mind you, it's very searching. I say there are many great questions in our Bible. I thought about, I thought about what I would term a question with no answer. Let me just mention it for a moment. Jeremiah 13, 21. It is one of 185 questions that God asked the nation eh, through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, what wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? How searching a question is that? I say a question with no answer. It takes my mind to a scene that's yet future, a judgment scene of Revelation 20. I hope, I trust earnestly that there's no one here will ever find themselves at that scene of judgment with no answer, nothing to say. Like the man of Matthew 22 and 12 that the Lord Jesus spoke about when he was come into the wedding feast without the provided garments, and it says he was speechless, nothing to say. Often think about Job in our Bible. You know, sometimes we hear men in their arrogance and in their folly speak against God and say if they could, if they could meet God, if they could uh, come to face to face with him, they would have it out with him. They would t set the record straight. They would ask him a few hard questions. I tell you no. You know, I think about Job as I say, Job, Job, remember, was one of the most upright, the most righteous man of his day. And he cries out in Job 23 and verse 4, he says, Oh, that I knew where I would, might find him. 
He says, I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would order my cause before him. But you read on in the book of Job. And in those closing chapters, within the confines of about three and a half chapters, God asks Job 84 questions. And Job hasn't an answer to any one of them. He says, I lay my hand upon my mouth. And I say, Job, Job was a righteous man. How much more will it be for the sinner? Oh, what a solemn thought to stand, I say, before God with no answer. As we might borrow the language of 1 Peter 4, the righteous scarcely be saved. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? A question with no answer. What wilt thou say? Mind you, there's God to meet you, and I have God to face. I often think about the words of Hebrews 4 and 12, him with whom we have to do. Every one of us have got to do with God. I thought, you know, I thought in my Bible of a question with only one answer. It'd be a grand, grand afternoon here in Ballyclare if there was someone just listening to the meeting this evening. And this was your question. Only one answer. It's a question that rang out in the jail in Philippi long ago when the earthquake shook the prison at the midnight hour. And the question of the jailer was this, what must I do to be saved? wonder is there anyone, and you've come along to the meeting this afternoon, we're glad to see you here today. I wonder if you come with that desire just to know more about the way of salvation. I say there's only one answer to it. The answer that the jailer received that night in the jail Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The passage of time hasn't changed the answer, and so we present to you the only answer. Salvation's found in Christ, Christ alone. One act of faith, God's promise saith, in him who all my burdens bore brings me his grace who took my place, and I am saved forevermore. Only one answer. You notice, you notice the jailer was asking, what must I do? People love to be doing. There's many as a soul, even in, I'm sure, in the town of Ballyclare and around, and if you asked them about their hopes of heaven, they would speak about what they're doing. The religions of this world, in their myriad number, have a common thread running through them of doing. Whether it's prayers or penance or pilgrimage or whatever, do, 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 and maybe, 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 maybe it'll be enough. You see, that's where the message of the gospel, the message of this book, God's unerring word, stands apart from all others. We present to you a way of salvation on the grounds of a work that's already done. I like, I like that hymn we sing sometimes, It is finished. What a gospel. Nothing has been left to do but to take with grateful gladness what the Savior did for you. We present to you a work that's complete. Alexander Marshall, the Scottish evangelist, he wrote that little booklet that's been a help to many a seeking soul, God's Way of Salvation. Marshall told about a man of his acquaintance in the east coast of England. And that man said to Marshall, he said, it took me 42 years 
to learn three vital lessons. He said, the first thing I learned was this, that I couldn't do anything to save myself. That's a big, mind you, that's a big discovery to make. That you can't do anything. As Top Lady said in the great hymn of the Rock of Ages, it's not the labor of my hands. He says, I learned I couldn't do anything to save myself. Said he, the second thing I discovered was this, that God didn't ask me to do anything. And said he to Marshall, oh, the third great discovery I made, and here's what brought peace to my soul. Not only that I couldn't do anything to save myself, and that God didn't ask me to do anything, but he says, I made the great discovery that Christ had done it all. And so we present to you this afternoon the answer to this great question. There's only one answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. What a promise from the God of heaven. A question with only, only one answer. I thought quickly about a question in our Bible with only two answers to it. That great question that the Roman governor Pontius Pilate asked in Matthew 27, 22. Face to face with the person of the Lord Jesus. He asked that great question that still rings out down the centuries. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? I say there's only, only two answers to that question. wonder how have you responded? You see, Pilate on that occasion would have longed for a third option. Pilate tried from every, it would be a study in itself to read the narrative just to see the many ways in, Pilate, in which Pilate tried to remain neutral. His wife said, don't, don't get involved, Pilate. That wasn't an option for Pilate. Pilate had to make a choice. He made the fateful choice. For Pilate, it was the choice between justice self-preservation, doing what he knew was right. He had acknowledged that repeatedly that there wasn't a single fault in the Lord Jesus. But he was thinking, thinking of his own standing before the mighty emperor Caesar. And he made the fateful choice. For the crowd that day, they had to make their choice. It was Barabbas or Christ. And so they made their choice. For those Roman soldiers, as they made their way out to the hill of Calvary, they had to make the choice. Either carry the cross themselves or compel another passerby, Simon, to carry it. And I say, as Christ approaches, all must make a choice. He is the unavoidable Christ. And you, my dear friend, I have to tell you kindly, have to make a choice. That question rings out just as forcefully as it did for Pilate. And even just in a simple meeting like this here, though you may have come along just out of habit, and we thank you so much for your presence, but as you take your leave and make your way home this afternoon, you too will have made a choice. You'll either be amongst those numbered who have accepted Christ. What a choice, Christ for me. As a poor sinner, I have accepted him. My hopes for eternity are on Christ and on Christ alone and what he accomplished at Calvary. 
or another afternoon you leave without a saviour and you've said no again to a loving saviour. You know, we were singing those lines earlier, weren't we? He's bidding the weary come. Oh, now in the glory still he's the same. Oh, how he loves to save. He would save you today if you would only trust him. I wonder what your choice will be. And so these questions of our Bible are so instructive and so challenging. I say a question with no answer. A question, a question with only one answer. A question with two answers. Well, in these closing minutes, what about this question here? I think we could write over it a question, a question with many answers. What manner of man is this? How can we, in the few minutes allotted to us, begin to answer the, the, the quest, this great question? You know, Isaac Watson, one of his great hymns, said, join, join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that mortals ever knew, that angels ever bore. All are too mean to speak his worth, too mean to set his glories forth. We can scarcely touch, touch the very fringes of the answers to this great question. I like, you know, John, John, who was so closely associated with the Lord Jesus here in his earthly journey. You know, I like how John closes his gospel. And what answers he has given us as you read those 21 wonderful chapters as to answers to the greatness of this person, the Lord Jesus. And as he lays down his pen, here's what he says. He says, there are many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Oh, the answers to this great question. Well, someone as well said, John, who opens his gospel, talking about the word, in the beginning was the word. He closes the gospel with the thought of a vast library. The world itself, he said, could not contain the books that should be written. And I tell you, for everyone that has put their trust in the Lord Jesus, I believe eternity will be a continual unfolding of answers to this great question as we learn more and more of the greatness of the Savior that we have trusted for all eternal ages. Well, as another said, I've come, I've come to know thee, Lord. And what shall be the ending? I've touched the fringe of who thou art, and that is joy transcending. I'm standing on a rippling shore Love's ocean depths are all before. Always oh, set before you tonight a Savior that's worthy of your trust. What manner of man is this? We could speak to you this, this evening about the manner of his birth, that birth that was marked by simplicity. He was the sent one. Doesn't John write in 1 John 4, 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and into the humblest of circumstances, this blessed one came from heights of glory to the manger at Bethlehem. We could speak to you with delight about the manner, the manner of his life, a life that was marked by stability. He was the sinless one, Ah, I love those words that the Savior said of himself. 
so different from you and I. In John 14, 30, he said, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. What a wonderful statement. Nothing within that blessed wonder is spawned to sin, absolutely sinless and perfect and pure, without a trace of Adam's sin, as man unique in origin, all fair without, all pure within, our glorious Lord, the manner of his life, with unfaltering step, he went all the way to Calvary. What about the manner of his death? A death that was marked by severity. Oh, just let's pause here before we close our meeting in a few minutes' time. Just speak about the manner of his death as the sin-bearing one. Visage so marred, didn't Isaiah say in Isaiah 52? But said Peter, as he wrote about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, those lovely words of 1 Peter 2, 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. The sin-bearing one, he who had no sin, became the sin-bearer. It was quoted here this morning, Brethren, rose in thanksgiving for the Lord Jesus and for what he accomplished at Calvary. Those lovely lines of J. Denham Smith's, grand if someone would appreciate them tonight for the first time. All my sins were laid upon him. Jesus bore them on the tree. God who knew them laid them on him. Unbelieving I go free. Have you ever put your trust in Christ? The one who took the guilty sinner's place. Peter, when he was writing again in 1 Peter 3.18, he says, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. What a statement. He who was the just one took the place of the unjust. That's the one that we speak to you about tonight set before you the something of the greatness of this one. This question, what manner of man is this? Christ died, said the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And we present to you a living Christ today. One, as we have already quoted, who's in the glory and still is a saviour, still invites the sinner. Do remember that he is on high today, a living saviour. For those who have trusted him in this meeting tonight, ah, we could speak with delight about the manner of his ministry today at God's right hand. He's a supporting one. I like the language of Hebrews 2.18, as another translation gives it, in that he himself has been tried by suffering. He has power to help us in the trials that we undergo. I tell you, we have a Savior worthy of your trust. But do remember that there is the manner of his return. He's the soon coming one. It's a return that will be marked by swiftness. It was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and the one who rose from the slopes of 
Hallowed the Mount of Olives and ascended on high. He had said to his own before he went to Calvary, he says, I will come again. Perceive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. I wonder in light of that event, that imminent, that any moment return, one can feel that we are living in days that are moving fast to this great event, in a world that's increasingly in chaos and darkening all around us. Could it be that we're living on the very threshold of his return? It is my responsibility to ask you kindly in light of that, are you ready? It was the Savior himself who said in Matthew 24, be ye also ready. You say, we've heard it often. Life goes on the same. In such an hour, said the Savior, as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Are you ready? Oh, we appeal to you and love to your soul today in light of eternity. The light of that any moment return. Now is the time to trust him. He's coming to the air to take away his own. He's coming to this earth. Oh, what a prospect. We could speak with delight also of the manner of his reign, a reign that will be marked by serenity. It's a reign. He is the sovereign one. Didn't he? David in that beautiful psalm of kingdom glory speak in Psalm 72 of the abundance of peace. What a prospect. A world that knows little of peace is going to know the reign of this blessed one. And I ask you just kindly, as a meeting closes, how will it be for you in that day, friend or foe? Some years ago, I was over in the city of Bristol, and I went to see the Methodist Museum there in the city. It's most interesting. And just at the approaches to it, there's statues of the two Wesley brothers, there's a statue of John Wesley on horseback, and it tells about the thousands of miles that he traveled across the UK preaching the gospel. The other statue is of his brother Charles Wesley, and in the statue he holds an open Bible. The other hand is outstretched before him, and cut into the stone at the base of the statue are these words, let me commend my Savior to you. We do that today without any hesitation, without any reservation, we can commend to you a Savior that's worthy of your trust. What will be your response? What manner of man is this? What a Savior. Any wonder sometimes we exclaim with Philip Bliss, hallelujah, what a Savior. Only trust him would be the plea of our heart to your soul in love today. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Just to know him as Savior and begin to learn of answers to this great question. What manner of man is this? Let's bow in prayer. Our God and Father, we humbly bow in thy presence in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee again for thy Son, our Lord and Savior. We thank thee again for one who willingly came in love to guilty sinners. 
and went all the way to the hill of Calvary, and there settled forever sin's tremendous claim. Glory to Jesus, blessed be his name. We thank thee for all who know him personally, can say like Mary of old, my Savior. We pray, our Father, that others in the meeting tonight, by the workings of the Spirit of God, would have an understanding of their need of him, and willingly bow their stubborn heart even this very day, and receive Christ as Savior. We look to thee to bless. We are keenly aware of the fact that salvation is a divine work, and so we leave the issues of these moments in thy hand, that it might bear fruit eh, for eternity. There are many like efforts eh, going on throughout the afternoon and evening hour in the gospel, and we do pray for thy rich blessing, that it might please thee across this land today to move in mighty saving power, and that souls by the Spirit's workings would be drawn to the Saviour of sinners. We look to thee to bless as we give thee our thanks and make our requests in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.